You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. This week, I'm talking to Otavio Costa. Otavio is a portfolio manager of Crescat Capital and has been with the firm for six years. Uh, He built Crescat's macro model that identifies the current stage of the cycle for a combination of 16 factors. Uh, His research has been featured on Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Reuters, and Real Vision, the important one. So, Tavi, is it right to call you a Paulistano? Um, that's, uh, that's about right. Yeah. I am from, uh, from Sao Paulo, uh, area. Yes, that's correct. And I, I, have I pronounced that right or have I mangled it? I bet you I mangled it. You were very close to it. It's, it's called Paulistano. You see, yeah, I wasn't anywhere near it. You're, you're being way too kind as usual, but, um, and, uh, so you are, uh, we were just talking about this before we started recording, uh, Ottavio is the same as Octavian in English, which, which actually the Romans used it as a, it meant you were the eighth, uh, you were the, the eighth child, but you're not the eighth child. You're, you're, they just, your parents called you that because they expected you to be a great leader of the, of the Roman empire. You, you would think so. <laughs> There's a lot of big things coming for me. <laughs> So far, so good, right? The, the the plan is going well. So, look, you live in Denver now. Yeah. Compare Sao Paulo to Denver. Oh boy, it's completely different. Um, climate is 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 very different. I mean, I guess very dry here, very humid in in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I would say it's a, a lot safer. Um, it's something we don't think about it when we live in the U.S. I guess, but uh, living in Brazil, you 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 get to learn about. <laughs> Some of the issues that can happen um, um, on the streets. Um, you know, I've had issues with my even my family uh, there as well. But it's it's a lovely place. It's uh, food. I, I really miss the food in 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 those uh, in the area. Uh, the culture is uh, is uh, is fascinating uh, to me. And uh, I'm still a Brazilian. I just live here in the U.S. <laughs> So a, a while ago, I had to make markets every now and then in Brazilian rates because I ran a, a LATAM macro desk for a while uh, until my bosses sobered up. And um, every now and then, the Brazil trader, the rates trader, would take some time off on vacation. I hated that so much because it's a nasty market to trade. Um, it's it's technically very demanding because you're actually trading futures and you got to like hedge up stuff with that. And then what you know the the U.S. hedge funds and Brazilian hedge funds trade enormous size relative to the liquidity of the market. So it's really easy to drop half a million bucks in like ten seconds after you quote someone. I I, I really hated trading Brazilian rights. I, I I don't know why I'm telling you that, but <laughs> well, no, it's a good point. I mean, it's it's interesting in the U.S. We're in a place where um, investment um, uh, principles and in general and approaches that we see here, such as let's say growth investing and and quant 
are things that are are very well developed in in, in developed markets. Um, but in in emerging markets like Brazil, they're still I wouldn't say stuck on the the value investing. I mean, I think a lot of people like myself love. Uh, the principles of, uh, of understanding fundamental analysis and so forth and applying those to uh, making decisions. But it's interesting how uh, in Brazil, it's all about that. It's still, you know, it have, it, we haven't seen much of a, of a branching out when it comes to approaches of, of investing. So uh, macro is very few funds are, are really focused on macro. And so uh, it's, it's an interesting, uh, this creates a lot of inefficiencies and opportunities, I guess. So it's a... Uh, Good in a bad the thing. guys, the guys I've seen that focus on it, like there's two or three pretty big hedge funds in Brazil, yeah, um, and those guys can act, can definitely move the exchange rate. They can definitely move interest rates, and a long way too. Mm. I would not want to go against them because you know those guys are politically connected, yeah. And if they're going to tell you that rates are going up, they're probably right, yeah. So um, that was the other observation. Someone once told me that Sao Paulo has more helicopters. Mm than any other big urban centre. Because if you're loaded, it makes much more sense to you take a helicopter from one building to another building <laughs> than just to try and drive there. You try and drive, you could be in God knows what traffic for so long. But a helicopter from building to building is, is apparently a great way of getting around. So Hey, I don't own one, but but uh, I know people that do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I don't actually have a helicopter. I don't plan on getting one either. Gas mileage is apparently quite poor. But, uh, <laughs> so what do you have your eye on right now, uh, which is not your next big trade? What is anything in the news which is catching your attention that's, you know? Oh, well, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, what's in my mind right now, it has to do with, I mean, we've always used history to to look for an analog and other times that uh, we've had similar environment when it comes to the macro forces where we can uh, then, you know, also empirically see what assets perform well during those times too. But today, I hate to say, but it seems like this is the most unique uh, times we've seen. I don't think we've ever seen uh, three major macro imbalances happening all at once. I'm referring to the debt problem. Uh, the valuation and also uh, the inflation. So we've had this uh, 1940s type of uh, debt issue uh, along with the 1970s inflation. And then you have, you had the speculative environment of the 19, uh, the late 1990s. And so, you know, the result of all this, in my opinion, and it, it's what it's in my mind, is is it the real political constraints when it comes to policymaking and even avoiding inflationary forces to infiltrate the, the economy. So, what are the implications of that? There's so many themes uh, we, you know, that can uh, come out of that that thought in particular. So uh, I guess that's what's really in my mind is how do I capitalize on those constraints? So talk to us about your next big trade. What is the investment thesis? What's the opportunity you see? So to me, going back to history and times when people actually really capitalize on big secular trends are the ones that were able to build a business, identify those trends, first of all, and build a whole business behind it and a strategy that, uh, that really manages uh, uh, some sort of way of, of, of capitalizing in those, in those changes. And um, I'm referring to technology in the 90s, you know, early 90s, uh, folks that opened a business that was successful during that time, certainly made a lot of money. We saw crypto recently. I think I think when I you know certainly the 
monetary disorder issue is a theme, but a bigger theme to me is is what it could potentially happen with commodities. And uh, the market is starting to get crowded out and folks are starting, institutions are starting to put money into different parts of that market. But there's a lack of, of, of not only capital, but also labor uh, into uh, the exploration side of, of, of commodity businesses. And so the, the lack of labor also uh, creates an issue of, of finding professionals that can navigate the space. The inefficiencies, the level of inefficiency we're seeing uh, when it comes to those assets, it's, it's absurd. Um, and empirically, one more time, when you go back to other times in history where you had a cycle in commodities or tangible assets, and specifically gold and silver, um, you've had uh, where the real money was made was in the exploration side of the industry. So I think that that's the best, that the, the next new trade is, is, is to be able to accumulate assets that are high quality uh, that can actually perform and create the new deposits that are going to be used to replenish uh, the production line of the big major companies uh, in the mining space. And it's important to note that the CapEx cycle for mining has been in a downward trend for many, many years. Um, perhaps if you adjust for GDP growth, it's probably one of the worst uh, we've seen in history. And so when you look at that uh, ratio and the exploration budget that has been also in a declining trend, we haven't seen many discoveries of gold. We haven't seen many discoveries of silver. In fact, we haven't seen any uh, that, that are above 2 million ounces of gold equivalent uh, in any other part of the world in the last three to four years. So this is creating a shortfall or supply cliff in the major companies that continue to have to generate free cash flow and, and, and deplete their reserves, their existing reserves, without replenishing them. So it's going to create a massive M&A cycle, in my opinion, in the next five to 10 years as they continue to also improve their balance sheets and make money uh, and become uh, healthier as, as businesses. Um, and so for me, that's, that's where the focus has been, is, is to dive into a completely different industry, part of the industry, um, which is geology and, and, and dealing with very micro-cap companies with very low liquidity, uh, but with tremendous opportunity that can really deliver value and become the new Newmonts and barracks of the world. So that's, for me, that's the next big trade. It's not technology, it's not crypto, it's, it's that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So I like the idea, but I don't know the space at all. I'm keenly aware that, that you're too good looking to go to jail. Um, so you got to be careful about making something that sounds like an investment recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, so nothing that Tavi says constitutes an investment recommendation. He would never dream of saying, doing something like that. However, give me some names. I have no idea what name is in this space. Well, to be honest, this was a learning curve for me, for myself as well, and my partner, Kevin Smith. Back in 2018, we're dealing with most, most of the GDX, GDXJ members as part of the theme. And then, you know, from our networks, we, we met with Quentin Henney, which is an exploration geologist, one of the guys that made uh, the biggest uh, gold and silver discoveries and base metals discoveries in the last uh, decade or so uh, in the world. And so 
uh, we partnered with him. And, and uh, at a time, he was sharing some of the portfolio companies that he's been uh, investing in. We didn't know any of those businesses. And so it was sort of a surprise to us. Uh, we came in, you know, some of them give you some names of the successful ones. Uh, Newfound Gold in Newfoundland was was uh, one of our investments pre-IPO. SK Mining uh, is another one. Uh, it's, it's in the Golden Triangle. We even have one in Bolivia, uh, Eloro Resources uh, in Bolivia. Uh, but we've got over 95 names in our portfolio. Again, this is a statistically... You don't want to be putting all your 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 money in one in one position. Uh, we you want to allow those positions to grow, in our opinion, uh, but at the same time have a diversified portfolio strategically, also in a, in when it comes to geography. Um, so looking for those places that are likely to become the new hot places for mining uh, that are also uh, close or, or or I would say strong targets for for M and A. Um, and, and that's really the, the way. So we've, we've, there are different ways of looking at this industry. It's about $600 billion or $550 billion worth of market cap in this industry. Uh, the majority of that, over 60 to 70%, comes from the major companies. So if you, if you strip that out and just look at the other part, uh, it's about you know, over 2,000 companies in the Bloomberg database of companies that are just exploration assets that either have not been successful, completely failed, have been failing for many, many years, or just have been the result of this failure of the whole industry of, of capital, uh, you know, uh, bleeding and, and, and mismanagement and, and misallocation of capital. It, so many ways you can, you can twist this. And so um, the, the, that part of the industry is completely depressed. And so it, it, there are no professionals or no young professionals. It's a, uh, it's 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 astonishing what's happening, and I've, I'll be surprised if we're still in that place five years from now. So, yeah, there are really good ESG reasons why exploration as an activity uh, has been out of favor. Yeah, uh, I know that, for example, I saw a stat said BP used to have eight hundred or seven hundred in its uh, exploration department, and they fired all but one hundred. And, you know, the, the energy explorers, you know, en energy companies are looking to reduce their environmentally questionable activities. Uh, believe it or not, a weird story. My father was a small-time gold uh, miner, if you like, a gold dealer in uh, the Orinoco Delta in Venezuela. Uh, and uh, he told me some of the approaches they use to extract gold. It's kind of similar to what artisanal gold miners do today in, in the Brazilian forest. You're sucking gold out of, out of rivers uh, and sometimes uh, applying mercury to the rivers to get to extract the gold. And you ask him, didn't you just kill all the fish in the river? The answer is, yeah, and... Now, those that's one reason why exploration is a little... but. And I see the same thing in, in energy, that there's nobody, geologists are not going into this space. So I, I think you're probably onto something. The one big question mark I have is the easiest place to get uh, new reserves if you're a big gold miner is the juniors. Uh, so if you wanted to, you don't have to explore. The first step is to just buy out all the junior miners. Why, why are the, the juniors haven't performed yet? Uh, GDX has massively outperformed GDXJ. So surely it, the next step is, you know, we could just trade the GDXJ before we have to worry about explorers. Why is that wrong? 
Well, look, there's there's a lot of reasons. I think that, that the easy money usually comes to the bigger companies and there's uh, not the same necessity when it comes to the complexity of understanding this industry. And uh, we've seen this in other cycles that it's quite normal to have the first part of it uh, being driven by uh, the royalties and the big major companies that already have consistent free cash flow. Uh, it's important to know that, you know, going back to this lack of discoveries and issues of no one really spending any capital into into that. Uh, just to give you a sense, I mean, uh, you know, Newmont and Barrick probably combined have about 30 or so uh, drilling uh, or active drills in, in greenfields. Um, our portfolio has somewhere close to 140. So you start thinking about that, you know, that they're just not doing enough. And maybe they're just going to be coming in and uh, being able to accumulate enough cash from their existing reserves and uh, be able to to buy out those those other opportunities. And that's part of our thesis, sure. sure. Uh, but institutional capital capital just doesn't have the, the knowledge. You know, we've been talking to those folks uh, many times and there's just not enough knowledge outside of the industry uh, on on how to how to tackle this this opportunities and most of the the issues has to do with liquidity uh, the lack of liquidity uh, you know really constrains most of uh, of folks to uh, to invest in the space what we're doing is not even the GDXJ by the way it's it's lower yeah than you're that. the stage <laughs> yeah 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 but I I hear you it's been um there's a lot of financially savvy folks uh, uh, trying to navigate the development space and the GDXJ members, for instance, and picking and choose what are the ones that are going to perform better than the ETF and the benchmarks. Uh, and I think there are great ways to do that. But um, for us, I mean, it, I think the bigger story is is that is that supply cliff issue. And it, it's not just gold and silver. I mean, it, it really is copper uh, in a large way, base metals as a whole, too. Um, look, let's just one example. This might be the first time with energy companies that we're seeing oil prices at the levels that we're seeing today, and geologists are actually trying to leave those companies. When was yeah. the last time we've seen this before? I mean, that, you know, ESG has certainly a lot to do with that. Uh, the 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 fear of maybe those businesses not being in business in the next five to ten years. I disagree. Um, I think they they still be in business in five years. Um, but some of them are trading like they will be. Uh, and so I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity still. Yeah, I, I definitely can see why it should be, why the scenario, and a lot of it, a lot of it is about where the gold price is. Um, there's a gold price on one side of the equation, and then you've got the cost of extracting gold on the other side of the ex- equation. Um, and I'm assuming it's because it's the cost function where for the uh, GDXJ, which is why they've been underperforming, that for some reason the larger companies have access to better technology, which lowers their costs. Um, and until the technologies improve more or the price of gold goes up more, GDXJ can't outperform. Now, I don't know the space like you, so I'm guessing, because usually there's a good reason. People aren't dumb. They don't leave money on the table. What kind of cost structure are you guys thinking about that would make this make sense? Because, you know, it's hard. It's expensive to find new gold. Yeah. Well, it's geologically expensive. It's becoming more and more challenging challenging over the years to find gold uh, and silver and base metals. Uh, We haven't seen any of the major companies develop a new project in many, many years, sometimes even more than decades. Um, and I'm talking about even majors in the in the base metal space too. Um, I think personally, I think there's um, 
just we haven't seen any the, the, the professionals, a lack of professionals that understand the industry is a huge part of, of the problem that creates the complexity to cross that bridge uh, to, to finally create a vehicle, investment vehicle to, uh, to tackle this as an opportunity. Um, to us, as it certainly has been the case. I mean, we can't find CEOs, you know, good CEOs, good folks that can run some of the companies that we find. Uh, we find good assets. We want to build new companies and we can't find people. So, you know, this is not a problem. Um, this is, if you look at geoscience enrollments have been in the major declines. So all those are structural problems in the, in the industry that, that creates part of what you're referring to, which is why are folks not investing in, in the smaller names? Um, I think, I think we just still, we have this move up in gold prices more recently. It's, it's been mostly driven by a risk off trade. It's been because of the war, not so much about the monetary side. Um, but I think we're yet to see the, the monetary impacts of all this, uh, that will drive gold and silver and, and even other metals much higher. And, and when we see that, we just start seeing some of the money coming into other parts of the industry and the riskier parts. Uh, begin to lead the way to the upside, along with silver as well, that tends to lead to the upside versus gold. But we haven't seen any of that. Look at the gold and silver ratio. Look at the uh, the miners relative to gold ratio as well, which is just now breaking out from, a, I don't know, over 20 plus years of a resistance line. Um, so there's a lot of uh, small signs that we're seeing uh, changes here that, that perhaps could be explosive to the upside. But uh, it, it may take some time to uh, to happen. I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen. And I think my uh, objective as a fund manager is to accumulate assets that I think are cheap and, and fit into this, this uh, macro narrative that I think will play out in the following years. And that's certainly the case with exploration assets. So uh, just one more thing. If you look at the intercepts of, of, of exploration companies that, that they have to report, when they put out reports back in, in other times when we had gold cycles, those companies would quadruple on those results that are uh, positive, obviously, that are above expectations. Today, companies are going up 15 20% on the back of those results. So the, the level of inefficiencies is even larger than we've seen in any other cycle. And I think this is going to create a major M&A opportunities in, in, in that I think will be uh, very interesting for investors. So let's talk about the mechanics of getting exposure. Um, you mentioned your company has a fund. Yeah. Um, is is that the best way to get exposure? How would you recommend people obtain the exposure? Well, there's a lot of misunderstandings about this industry and and create issues as well when 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 trying to uh, find exposure here. One of them is is folks that are looking for large deposits. So most people are looking for big targets with you know major deposits with a lot of metal but not economical metal. So they're not with high grades and, and they're not economically viable. So that's a problem uh, because if you're wrong about the metal price, which I don't think we will be, but if we're wrong about the metal price, um, th those assets perform very poorly during bear markets in, in, in those periods. So you wanna be looking for very high quality assets that have some sort of, of M&A opportunity in the future, some sort of exit plan, um, that are have in a safe jurisdiction or are uniquely uh, positioned to succeed in a certain jurisdiction. Um, and so there are many, many ways that we end up in management is a huge part of this. 
Um, you you want to make sure the management and the the the, the technological. I'm sorry, the the technical team is 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 strong because without that, you won't won't succeed. Um, and so. Uh, and make sure that they know how to how to raise capital because that's another problem as well. I mean, this com- this, this industries, uh, you know, they don't make any money. They're they're in the business to dilute themselves to then explore. And if they find something, usually the market cap pops. Um, and and so that's basically what their business is about. And so for us, it's more about being diversified, intelligently diversified in regions that we think are going to succeed. I'll give a few examples: the Golden Triangle, Newfoundland, uh, Nevada has great assets. Idaho has great assets. Uh, we find places in Bolivia, uh, even Brazil, um, uh, Mexico has great areas, but it's a much, much more, I would say, unsafe and, and harder to operate. Finland, it is great assets in Finland, um, uh, Australia. So we've been, you know, really chasing regions that we think are going to be. Uh, successful, and we try to acquire a large portion of those businesses. But there are ways of of navigating the space. I, I think it's a uh, it, it's difficult because if you don't have the understanding of geology, um, I think you're poised to fail in this in this in this part of the industry. Personally, um, and I think that's what what worries most people, and and what causes those inefficiencies and the lack of capital into the space. Um, so I don't think I'm answering your question, to be honest, uh, of, of ways, but, uh, um, because it's, um, I think it's, it's driven by knowledge of the industry, uh, and not so much financial analysis. I mean, there's not much financial analysis relative to the importance and relevance of making sure you're, you're buying something geologically sound. Uh, and I think that's a bigger part of the story. So for us, it's been uh, great to have a person like Quentin, but there are many other geologists, not many other, but there's some some other geologists out there that are also very successful that people can follow and, and perhaps have a, a diversified positions into the this part of the industry. Yeah, it, it's a tricky one because I recognize the underlying argument, I think, is quite a strong argument. Yeah, uh, We see it in a, in a bunch of industries, not just uh, mining. Uh, there's a shortage of farmers as well. The average age of farmers is getting mm-hmm. very high. Yeah. Uh, and we, we're going to have to have some transition at some point. We're not going to, uh, we're not going to run out of a need for the underlying mineral. We'd have to economize on the underlying metal or whatever, but we can't run out completely. So we're going to have to find new mines. Um, there's a difference though. The, 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 you said farmers, correct? For example, in farmers, yeah, the difference is is you can develop a you know farming in general is 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 something that can be fixed in one or two years. And mining is you know you're talking seven seven to ten years to to fix an issue like this. And so I think there's also a lack of understanding from a green revolution perspective of how long it's going to take to feed this all these innovations that we're wanting to have, such as electrical vehicles and so forth electrifying the world and um and and how we're going to get there and so that's what concerns me is uh it's not a capital question it's it's much more of a labor question and capital will drive labor at some point but it takes time it does take time and whenever i talk to people about this kind of mechanism i can't help 
but think that what's expected to happen is you're going to get big, big underlying commodity price moves. Yeah. And those under, but you get a big outscale move in energy or in gold. Yeah. And that's going to attract capital into the space. And when the capital goes into the space, a cup, you know, that will attract bodies, you know, young people into the space. And seven years later, the problem is fixed. But that means you've got upward pressure on the underlying metal mm-hmm. for seven years. Right? Yeah. This doesn't alleviate for that length of time. How big is the rally at the end of that time? Don't know. But it's, you know, I'm concerned. Look, I can see part of the rationale for this is the operational leverage, yeah. right? Part of the rationale is you get implicit convexity yeah. so that, if you get it right and it works, it might be a huge move. So then my question to you is how big should this trade be in your portfolio? How much should you like what what kind of percentage of your net worth do you imagine somebody putting into this? Well, I believe in this so much that for me it's a significant portion of my net worth for a portfolio. It depends on the portfolio. I mean, we created a whole fund that is a hundred percent um, focus on on exploration assets, basically. So it's called the Precious Metals, Crescent Precious Metals Fund. Uh, now, the Global Macro Fund has, uh, on a gross basis, uh, a pretty good chunk, like seventy percent of the of of the long uh, assets are probably in, in that in that camp. Uh, we have a lot of other short Whoa, positions. Seven, seven zero. Yeah, well, we have other, okay. other other. It's in gross yeah. exposure. So okay, um, I got gotcha. you. We're we're we have at least uh, eight or nine sub-themes in our portfolio, but that's our biggest portfolio theme. Um, we've got shorts all over. I mean, we've been playing a lot of uh, spread trades on emerging markets relative to developed markets. So we've been playing, uh, we think uh, commodities are going to outperform software companies. We think commodities will outperform mega cap companies or uh, their mis- mispriced cost of capital theme on uh, what we think are going to be squeeze of margins through cost of capital rising, wages and salaries, material cost. Um, I think treasury yields are probably going to head it are headed higher as well. This is a, a debt to GDP resolution type of theme. Um, I think the Chinese yuan could devalue going forward. Um, so a lot of themes, but but on on the growth basis, it's a large large percentage, and it's extremely asymmetric. Um, and I, I love that trade because it's been uh, we've been able to accumulate those assets over the last two to three years. And I think, you know, I, I, we wouldn't be there if we didn't have I, I would never put that trade on if I didn't if I didn't have a view about gold. I just find, find it hard to believe gold's going to be lower at lower levels in, in five to 10 years. And this is a long term trade. I'm not trading those names. I'm buying them and I'm staying with them for the next three to five years. Um, some of them we're going to be consolidating them. We're going to be creating uh, a new, new, new months and new barracks of the world. That's the whole goal. Um, and so this is a big, you know, long-term trend. So I have to think about if I'm carrying a book that is heavy on that. I have to think about what are my other macro hedges that I can take uh, in sure. order to uh, to sustain that that strategy over time. And uh, what hedges did you settle on? Oh, like the themes I just said. I mean, we're short software companies. We're short technology companies. On the other side, uh, we have we're long Brazilian assets. Uh, we're short U.S. Treasuries. I, I find it uh, difficult to believe. I mean, it's, I think it's a perfect hedge. Uh, yeah. If if yields decline, I think gold's going to do fine. I'm happy to be wrong on my Treasury play in that case. Well, you, so you know that I'm ninety percent pedant, right? And the other ten percent is blubber. 
Yeah. Right? So, uh, but um, because I'm ninety percent pedant, it can't be a perfect hedge. Like a perfect hedge will fully offset. You don't want a perfect hedge, right? Otherwise, you you know. I want so you've got hedge. some kind of basis. <laughs> you want a smart hedge, exactly. Well, exactly. Look, look back in the seventies. You know, I think there's an overwhelming amount of research on how real rates is this new thing that that drives gold. Well, you know, go back to the seventies. Watch what happened with nominal rates relative to gold. What happened was nominal rates are rising, extremely correlated or, or strongly correlated positively with with gold. Um, I think this is uh, the case there was the central banks, at least today, I think the case today is that central banks are likely to have to improve the, the quality of their international reserves. They're going to have to be buying gold. Um, and so I believe strongly that's going to happen. It's going to be reducing overall and on that basis uh, the uh, the demand for, for U.S. treasuries. And so there is a very good uh, a case that both can actually happen at the same time, meaning gold can actually go up with treasury yields actually rising uh, in a nominal uh, in nominal basis. So um, on top of it, you've got all the net issuances of, of treasuries and no one is talking about it. We're seeing $800 billion of net issuances of treasuries uh, every three months right now, and we're not even in a recession. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think that this is a, a problem when the Federal Reserve is going from the biggest buyer of those instruments to now a seller, um, and or at least claiming they will be selling. Um, so I'm worried about treasuries. I, I don't, you know, I think this could become a market narrative. Um, I sent you guys an email a month, a week or two ago, and uh, treasuries are moving now, and I didn't know it was going to move that, that quick. Uh, but I, I do think we're headed higher. And, and wake me up when yield curve control becomes a problem. So Tavi can see me smiling. I guess everyone listening to this can't. But I'm smiling because his hedge, he's made money on his hedge recently, and he's made money in his underlying so it's been a nice hedge. It's been a smart hedge. It's worked out very nicely. I'm pretty sure you didn't expect it to work that well. But, you know, we take them all, don't we? I, I hope the listeners <laughs> can hear this. I'm knocking on the wood and I've, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to claim any hubris here by, by any means. And there's a lot to go and a lot of things that I think are going to – I mean, this is the, one of the most exciting times in the macro – for being a macro shop, I would say probably in, in many, many decades. I mean, how many themes, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited about the gold side, but I can extrapolate on other themes here. And I think there are many other ways to uh, play. Uh, you talked about agricultural, basically commodities and farming and so forth. I mean, there's a whole play there too. I mean, I, I just haven't spent yeah, the time yeah. there, but. There's a whole play there for sure. No, but I think the the issue, the point you raise about there being this big bottleneck mm. as a, uh, in that we don't have the right personnel, it's a serious problem. We don't know it's a serious problem because we're not in the space. If we were in the space, we'd know that give it four, five, six years, suddenly the space is going to explode. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, you know what I like about this trade? And mm. I don't have it. Um, I have some gold, but I don't have anything quite this, you know, focused. Yeah. Uh, what I like about it is that it's explosive. Um, so if it works, and it, I don't think it's guaranteed it's working right now. So I mean, what am I talking about? But yeah. um, if your thesis is correct, 
the scenario in which bonds absolutely collapse uh, is one in which gold absolutely explodes. And, you know, I always, one of the questions I ask is, what would a thesis violation look like? We'll come to that in a second. In this particular case, I think it's better to ask, is there anything out there that has helped to confirm your view? Because I think there are a couple of things that have recently probably added to your confidence in this trade. Um, I think when we got into this trade, um, we had we respect the risk for inflation, but we never thought we would be where we are when it comes to the problems we're seeing today. And I think what strengthened that view has been what I call the four pillars of inflation that I think we have in the global economy, but really in the U.S., uh, and developed economies. Uh, one of them is the demand pull, the wages and salaries growth. I don't think that was the case three years ago when we came into this mm-hmm. trade. Um, that's certainly a, a big secular shift and structural shift in in the global in the U.S. economy. Um, the second one has to do with the chronic underinvestments in the space. We kind of knew that coming into it, but I think this is uh, more, you know, especially after oil uh, went negative uh, back in those uh, in in April of 2020. Um, you know, those are kind of exacerbated those trends uh, and, and cause even more issues when it comes to the constraints for uh, for management to spend capital. Uh, the, the third one has to do with, I think, started after the pandemic, really. Well, it was pretty significant before, but not to the degree that we're seeing now, which has to do with the reckless amount of fiscal spending. I mean, we have the most aggressive fiscal stimulus uh, today uh, to how strong labor markets are, but also how high and extreme uh, inflation is. I mean, we, we haven't seen any of that in, in, in uh, probably in, in 50 to 60 or maybe 70 years. Uh, and so those are, uh, are real inflationary mixes. And the fourth one happened more recently. Well, well, you could have you could have maybe make an argument that started in 2016 with maybe when Trump came in or the, the beginning of uh, uh, of geopolitical tensions and, and and sanctions with with China and so forth. Uh, but certainly now with Russia invading Ukraine, uh, things have really uh, gotten to a new level. So if we get to a deglobalized world, I think that's that's a very important pillar of inflation. So yeah, that that increased my. Uh, my views on 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 the space, but there, you know, certainly there's the other case of it, which is, you know, could be that that things could go the, the other way. But uh, it's my goal to always search for those. Uh, one of them could be China. You know, China devalues their yuan, uh, the Chinese yuan. Well, that's deflationary, I think. Uh, it's at least for the rest of the world uh, over a medium medium uh, time mm-hmm. uh, frame, yeah. and so. I hedge that because I, I don't know if, you know, I have, you know, the recipe for major devaluation is there. I mean, that the massive banking system, uh, issues with their housing markets, you, you got uh, likely encumbered uh, foreign reserves, um, uh, you got banks down 35, 40%, they're likely in a recession, uh, they don't report that, uh, they're a net commodity, net importer, not exporter, so they have issues with commodity prices rising. Uh, you've got folks coming out of China, not using them as a manufacturing plant anymore. Um, so, you know, those changes are very important changes in their economy. So uh, I'm quite concerned that that could be lead to a, a short period of of, uh, of deflation shock. So I, I you know, we'll, we're hedging that part in our global macro fund. So it's those are the the types of, uh, of of things that I think about all the time, and, and maybe yeah. ways of hedging this exposure in the commodity side. It's it's interesting. Uh, so I'm so old 
that back in the late 80s, early 90s, I I was working for the Bank of England. Um, You will find this hard to believe because of my terrible sense of humor when everyone knows Bank of England officials have a great sense of humor. But back then, I I remember writing a paper. Uh, I worked for the IMF group at the bank when they had an international division. The paper I wrote was why they should get rid of the gold. And it joined the other 400 papers that other people had written, other graduates who entered the bank had written on why they should get rid of the gold. Hmm. And they implemented it. They implemented it during the uh, Gordon Brown, I think, phase. And they suggested that they should reduce it. The UK implemented it, not the IMF. The UK got rid of its gold and sold all this gold. And I vaguely recall they sold it at around the $300 an ounce level. Uh, it marked the low. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> it was fantastic. They waited until gold had reached the absolute low wow. before they got rid of the UK's gold. But it's okay because they've got the Venezuelan gold now. Yep. Don't worry. So, um, and I'm thinking to myself, you're absolutely right. You've just seen uh, the Russians kind of do moves which make it look as if mm. they're trying to rebuild their gold holdings because gold has the advantage that it's very difficult to sanction very difficult to freeze. And if you want to swap it with the Chinese for whatever the Chinese are making that you need, they can melt it down and stamp it again. And no one ever knows that it was Russian gold. Um, It's not just the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians that will see an advantage to this. Um, Pretty soon, I suspect the Pakistanis and the Indians will see that Bitcoin is something where you can see exactly who did which transaction. Mm. And gold is something where you can't. Yeah. Um, anyway, for what little that's all worth. So you think the big thesis violation problem for you is a deflationary episode? Well, n- not really. I, I didn't mean that way. I, I meant to say those are things that I'm full. I actually think gold could perform in both ways. I, I, th- I think the biggest violation for my, my thesis would be some sort of big innovation or uh, type of trend that creates more units of growth for less units of of, of debt. Um, that's not the world we've been in. Uh, the, the world we've been in is more uh, debt for less growth. Mm-hmm. If we see a reversal of that trend, my thesis is wrong. I think my thesis is is incorrect, and that monetary disorder, um, you know, uh, 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 theme is 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 perhaps uh, not the right one, and so. I pay very close attention to that. Do I have any hedges on that? Not. I mean, I don't think there's a big way to hedge right now. But if I see something, I will. But I, I just, I don't think crypto is that. I don't really don't think so. I think crypto kind of add to 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 our thesis in a big way because it questions the 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 credibility of central banks and fiat currencies in general and and building a whole parallel monetary system. So, uh, in a way, I think it kind of adds to the the thesis in a very different uh, view than most people think that it's really stealing the lunch of, of gold and precious metals. But um, so it's probably the biggest libertarian move we've seen in, in, in history um, of people with the same ideology questioning um, the, the lack of anchor in a fiat currency. So, um, you know, don't remember we've seen this in, to the degree we're seeing now in, in many, many decades. So uh, quite interesting what's happening there. So yeah, that's what concerns me is is if we see some sort of innovation pattern, uh, you know, some sort of industrial revolution type of thing. Maybe AI would be that. Maybe um, some sort of automation um, type of uh, innovation that that can create 
uh, a setting in the global stage that, uh, that that shifts the whole need for for further amount of monetary dilution and debt in order to create some sort of growth. Uh, that would change completely my my view about the space. That's a it's really interesting point you make. That's a really interesting point. Um, uh, Tavi, thank you for coming on. Uh, if people want to read more of your thoughts, um, apart from Real Vision, where should they go? Oh, boy. Um, I think uh, I'm very vocal on Twitter, at Tavi Costa, uh, and also at Cresket.net is our website. I appreciate that you allowed us to share that. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for having me, too. Oh, not, not at all. So it's uh, been a great pleasure talking to you, uh, and thank you for sitting still through my terrible jokes uh, it's really hard to find people who will pretend I'm funny. Um, no, I, I, I appreciate it. But actually, it's a really interesting conversation for me. Uh, I, hope, I hope the people listening found it interesting as well. Um, let's do it again sometime, hopefully. Hey, happy to do it. Uh, it was a pleasure. I, I actually really thought you were funny. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.